Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa rise and shine This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa and Tabisolo Hoho. In our top stories on Africa rise and shine at the Sawa. Kenya's president extends a dust-to-dawn curfew by 60 days and lifts a ban on the sale of alcohol in bars. Today is World Heart Day with the whole month of September marked as Heart Month. And in economics news, the Zambia Chamber of Mines says the country should treat mineral royalty payments as a deductible expense in order to avoid double taxation and attract investment. But first up the news with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial from an african perspective good morning i'm Anne musa the commission of inquiry into state captures yet to respond to former south african president jacob zuma's letter in which he says he will not participate in its proceedings until commission chairperson deputy chief justice Raymond Zondo recuses himself. Zuma has sent the letter through his lawyer Eric Mabuza saying he feels Zondo is biased against him and wants to portray him as uncooperative. Zuma has decided that neither he nor his legal representatives will go to the commission in Johannesburg. Last week Zondo ordered Zuma to testify from the 16th to the 20th of November and said he would not negotiate with witnesses on the date they should give evidence. Mamukiti Marumo reports. Since the state capture inquiry began public hearings in August 2018, Zuma appeared for only five days of testimony, during which he repeatedly denied allegations against him and said he did not recall critical facts. On the 19th of July 2019, which was the last day of evidence from Zuma to date, his legal representative advocate Muzisi Kakane announced that his client was withdrawing cooperation altogether, claiming he was enduring cross-examination by head of the legal team and evidence leader, advocate Paul Pretorius. Since then, his appearance before the commission has been postponed three times. The inquiry's legal team has filed an application to argue why Zuma should be compelled through summons to appear before the commission. Two suspects arrested in Rustenburg in South Africa's northwest province on charges of human trafficking will appear in court later in the day. Three other suspects who were arrested on the same charges in Kuruman in the Northern Cape province on Sunday remain in custody. The 37-year-old Chukwema Ebwe Ibekwe, 28-year-old Emmanuel Akufo, and 30-year-old Ifani Udechi appeared in the Kuruman Magistrates Court in the Northern Cape on Monday. The five were arrested during a raid on two guest houses and a house in Rustenburg that were allegedly used as brothels. Seven women, a Zambian, Zimbabwean, three from Lesotho, and two from South Africa were rescued in Rustenburg and another four South Africans in Kuruman. 
The number of people around the world who have died from COVID-19 since the disease first emerged last year has just passed 1 million. Figures from John Hopkins University in the United States show that the U.S., Brazil and India account for nearly half of the total. Some experts believe that the real number could be significantly higher as testing rates in many countries remain low. This means death rates related to COVID-19 are not properly recorded. The World Health Organization is to provide 120 million rapid COVID-19 test kits to low- and middle-income countries. The WHO was briefing the media from Geneva in Switzerland. WHO's Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus explains. Today I have good news. I'm pleased to announce that thanks to an agreement between WHO and partners here today and others, A substantial proportion of these rapid tests, 120 million, will be made available to low- and middle-income countries. These tests provide reliable results in approximately 15 to 30 minutes, rather than hours or days at a lower price with less sophisticated equipment. And finally, rights group Amnesty International has accused France of suppressing legitimate protests, including during the coronavirus pandemic. In its report, the group says French authorities have weaponized criminal law to conduct arbitrary arrests at rallies. It says it's not condoning protesters who commit violence or arson, but the group says authorities are placing disproportionate restrictions on public assembly. That's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African time. In our sports update this hour, we begin with rugby news. South African Free State Cheetah supporters are crossing fingers for their team to play in the pro rugby in Europe. South African rugby and its general council are expected to vote on the future of South African rugby teams that will participate in Europe in future. Cheetah supporters in Bloemfontein came together to do a victory drive on the N1 to show their support to the Toyota Cheetahs. They say... They are hopeful that the announcement today will be in their favor. It's my birthday today and the best present will be to be in the Pro Pro 14. Tomorrow I'm I'm suspecting that we will stay in the Pro 14. We deserve to be in the Pro 14 and the union is doing whatever they can to keep us in the Pro 14. The four unions, Sharks, Bulls, Lions and Stormers, they want us out of the Pro 14. And we are fighting to stay in the Pro 14. And that's where we are going to stop. We deserve there. We fight it for three years there already. Now we are, we are, we, we're going to stay there. <laughs> and South African top tennis wheelchair Ace Kutato Munjane is preparing her return to competition after a seven-month layoff at the French Open. The wheelchair tennis event gets underway on the 7th of October until the 10th in Paris. Because of concerns amid the coronavirus pandemic, Monjane opted not to travel to New York for the U.S. Open. The current world number seven last played in a competitive match in January when he reached the Australian Open semi-final round in Melbourne. The French Open Grand Slam, which normally takes place in May, was postponed from its usual slot due to coronavirus pandemic. And finally, Saudi Arabia will host professional golf tournaments for women for the first time ever in November at the Royal Greens Golf and Country Club in Jeddah. 
the Saudi Ladies International will be the first Ladies European Tour, the LET event, to take place in the country and will run from the 12th to the 15th of November. With a purse of one million US dollars, the third highest paying event after the British and the Scottish Open. It will be followed by the 17th to the 19th of November Saudi Ladies Team International, in which professionals will team up with amateurs and compete for a purse of 500,000 US dollars. The events will be Saudi Arabia's third and fourth professional tournaments in the past two years, having staged the Saudi International Men's Event in 2019 and 2020. That's your sport news this hour. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. It's 7.08 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now to Kenya, where President Uhuru Kenyatta has extended the dust-to-dawn curfew by 60 days and lifted a ban on sale of on the sale of alcohol in bars. However, Kenyatta did not order reopening of schools until proper safety precautions are taken to prevent and control the spread of a pandemic that has up to today Tuesday killed 700 people. James Shimangula reports. In his speech to Kenyans late yesterday, Monday, President Uhuru Kenyatta announced that the country is flattening COVID-19 curve, an indication that victory against the invisible disease is in sight. But Kenyatta extended the dusk to dawn curfew by 60 days. The curfew has been in place since March this year. Nationwide curfew enforced throughout the territory of the Republic of Kenya is extended for a further 60 days. The nationwide dust-to-dawn curfew will run from 11 o'clock at night to 4 o'clock. Announcing the reopening of bars, Kenyatta said. Closing time for all bars and restaurants and eateries shall be 10 p.m. every day with effect from the 29th of September 2020 and their operations shall be with strict adherence to the applicable guidelines and protocols issued by the Ministry of Health. Regarding the expected reopening of schools, Kenyatta had this to say. As we progressively de-escalate the containment measures and resume a sense of normalcy, on education, our paramount consideration, both as a government, but also as parents, is the safety and well-being of our children. The lives of our children and their health is not a matter for debate. Learning institutions, therefore, should only be reopened when we have sufficiently guaranteed the safety of all our children. And here, I really would plead with Kenya that us not focus ourselves on when schools will reopen, but how shall these schools open in a manner that protects our children. President Kenyatta's speech to Kenyans followed a long discussion by a special panel in the capital Nairobi. Members of the panel highlighted both the hits and the misses in Kenya's national endeavor to flatten the COVID-19 infection curve. Dr. Evan Jenga of the Kenya Medical Practitioners and Dentists Association spoke about the Minister of Health quarantine that affected Kenyans in the last six months. In centers, I can tell you it was like a novel. We worked almost 24 hours. Most of them were non-health-based. Putting the teams together that took care of the medical aspect, the psychosocial aspects, security, it took different people to, to come together. Our security forces, our medical personnel, 
our partners, private partners, Red Cross giving us psychologists. This pandemic affected all people, the families. And when you took people to quarantine, the families were also affected, businesses were affected. So all spheres of our, our life was affected. So we all came together as Kenyans and exploded positively. Let's not also lose that moving forward. We are still within COVID. As we move post-COVID, health services must continue, facilities must improve. Dr. Lois Sombajo, Head of Infectious Diseases in Kenya, briefly spoke about the importance of wearing masks. We embrace the issues around wearing of masks. And we have to thank our government because they did listen to scientists and they did listen to doctors, which was very encouraging for us and the front line as well. Then we think about our population. What is it that's different with, um, let's say, the European population? And one is that we have a fairly young population, with our mean age being just about 20. At the end of the conference, Kenya's Minister for Health, Mutahi Kagwe, disclosed that 16 medical doctors have died from COVID-19. These are the people who are protecting us. And if we had epidemic amongst them, then we were going to be left bare. What did we do? We first started by creating a special ward at uh, Kenyatta National Hospital, specifically assigned for healthcare workers only so that even as the disease evolved, we were not going to have healthcare workers scrambling for bed capacity, scrambling for treatment amongst other people in other hospitals. So we created a special unit for, for that purpose. We appreciated the fact that um, they were going way above the call of duty. If you look at the way we moved in terms of the trying to get PPEs for them and spread them across the counties, we changed the law to allow for counties to be able to purchase PPEs at the height of this whole pandemic during March and April. Getting a PPE was a big, big problem. Even today we are still considering what we can do for the healthcare workers, what we can do for the medical fraternity as a whole. In another development, more than 800 doctors and nurses at Kenya's largest medical institution, Kenyatta Hospital, have staged a strike to demand the increase of their salaries. I spoke to some doctors and nurses who asserted that the strike is justified and they will not resume work until their salaries are increased. They need to be well remunerated, like other people. The strike in itself is justified. Do you think that you are justified in striking and in supporting the doctors for better pay and uh, other benefits? Yes, we are completely justified because doctors, we need to fight for our rights. The government has not been according the doctors the respect that they deserve. And not only just the doctors, but even the public health care system in general has been in shambles. And the government is not doing its part to make sure that their citizens are treated well. Voices of Kenyan medical doctors and nurses who have staged a strike demanding increase of their salaries. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. U.S. President Donald Trump has labeled a bombshell New York Times report that he paid little to no income tax in the, several year, in the last several years as fake news. 
The Times reported that the president, who is in a tough race for re-election this November, paid just $750 in federal income taxes in both 2016 and 2017 and paid no income taxes in 10 of the last 15 years, despite receiving more than $400 million in income related to his reality TV show The Apprentice, in addition to other endorsements and licensing deals. Show and Bryce Peace reports. The Times report late Sunday takes a deep dive into two decades of President Trump's tax information and finds that he didn't pay income taxes in 10 of the last 15 years and despite hundreds of millions in earnings. It's fake news. It's totally fake news. Made up fake. Furthermore, the Times report says his finances are under stress, beset by losses and hundreds of millions of dollars in debt that is coming due soon that he reduced his tax bill with questionable measures, including a $72.9 million tax refund, which is the subject of an audit by the Internal Revenue Service, and that the president received more money from foreign sources and U.S. interest groups than previously known. They also report that despite declared losses, Trump managed to live a lavish lifestyle by taking tax deductions on personal expenses, including $70,000 on hairstyling for television. We went through the same stories. You could have asked me the same questions four years ago. I had to litigate this and talk about it. Uh, totally fake news. Now, actually, I paid tax. but And you'll see that as soon as my tax returns. It, it's underwater. They've been underwater for a long time. The IRS does not treat me well. They treat me like the Tea Party, like they treated the Tea Party. And they don't treat me well. They treat me very badly. Uh, you have people that, in the IRS that... Very, they treat me very, very badly. It's a claim the president has made since before he was elected in 2016, despite former IRS officials saying there was nothing preventing the release of his tax returns, even if there was an audit underway. They're under audit, and when they're not, I would be proud to show you, but that's just fake news. The New York Times tried it, the same thing. They want to create a little bit of a story, a little bit of... They're doing anything they can. Not only that's the least of it, I mean... The stories that I read are so fake, they're so phony. New polling from ABC News and The Washington Post shows Democratic rival Joe Biden with a 10-point lead in a head-to-head matchup. With his campaign releasing an ad, drawing comparisons between the president's income tax bill and everyday Americans, showing that a teacher, firefighter or construction worker paid far more in income tax than the billionaire president. Well, I paid a lot, and I paid a lot of state income taxes, too. Uh, the New York State charges a lot, and I paid a lot of money in state. Uh, it'll all be revealed. It's going to come out. But after, after the auditors, after the... It, I'm being... They, they're doing their assessment. We've been negotiating for a long time. Things get settled, like in the IRS. But right now, when you're under audit, You don't do it. You don't do that. The tax story landing just days before the first presidential debate Tuesday. I'm Sherman Bryce Spears in New York. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. We have withstood the coronavirus storm. Now is the time to return our country, its people, and our economy to a situation that is more normal that more resembles the lives that we were living six months ago. Following consultations with 
a number of stakeholders. Cabinet decided that the country should now move to alert level one. The move to alert level one will take effect from midnight on Sunday, the 20th of September 2020. This move recognizes that levels of infections are relatively low and that there is sufficient capacity in our health system to manage the current need. Channel Africa. For your latest update on the novel coronavirus or COVID-19, for Channel Africa, I'm Arthur Skopo in Lusaka, Zambia. If you develop fever, cough, and difficulty breathing, seek medical advice promptly, as this may be due to a respiratory infection or other serious condition. Channel Africa is partnering with several organizations to broadcast the Accountability Breakfast 2020 on Tuesday, 29 September from 1400 hours to 1800 hours Central African time. This event promotes commitment to greater accountability for women, children and adolescents everywhere and will be streamed live on Channel Africa's website. So tune on to www.channelafrica.co.za or DSTV Channel 802. And don't miss out. It's 7.20 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. It's not usual... It's not a usual occurrence to meet someone who is both a medical doctor and a traditional healer in South Africa. However, Dr. Nkolo Sianego from Masodi village outside Mokopane in Limpopo seems to have eased into both. Known as Dr. Sangoma to his followers on social media, Sianego has managed to balance both his professional life and ancestral calling. Shibu Mamokhere brings us this report. 35-year-old Dr. Nkulu Sianero says he knew from an early age that he had an ancestral gift to be a traditional healer. This was not a surprise as both his maternal and paternal grandparents were practicing traditional healers. However, it wasn't until he completed his medical qualification that he embarked on his own spiritual journey. This presented a number of challenges for Sianero, who at first struggled to fit in with his peers within the medical fraternity. When I, I, I went and answered the calling of my forefathers, I had already finished um, uh, my studies as a medical doctor. And you know, with a lot of negativity that surrounds our, our practice as Sangomas, it was quite hard and also thinking, what would people say or what would people think? But uh, but you know, they, they they demand they do not ask you they demand so when it your, when it is your time to do what they want you to do you'll definitely do it irrespective of how you feel about it so eventually I had to try and find a way to juggle the both of them. Every day after his shift as a trainee cardiothoracic surgeon at West University, Sianero exchanges his lab coat for traditional healer's attire to attend to his other patients. He says although medical and traditional practitioners do things differently, the common goal is to nurse patients back to health. 
He, however, says there are some challenges. Both practices are emotionally draining because you are dealing with people's lives. You are dealing with things that matter the most, you know. Even if you try by all means not to be attracted to such, you find yourself already affected by the problems that affect your patients. So that is the, the disadvantage of, of these. The rewards remain that of, of seeing your patient doing well. And he advises other young people struggling to incorporate their ancestral callings in their professional lives to take one step at a time. This is quite a very um, uh, difficult journey and um, it's, it's not a journey that you can walk alone. You need your guides, you need your ancestors, you need your gang on your side. And a guide from them would be what is going to show you the correct way of doing it. Do not ever feel weird or awkward. Um, it's, it's okay to be different. And um, all you need to do is just find your path. He's also of the view that medical doctors and traditional healers can work together in the treatment of various illnesses. The, the, the population dynamics as it is, it, it is overburdened in the current health system. Then that shows that with these issues that can be solved at, at, at a level of, of your traditional medicine, the majority of the burden on the health system would be would be reduced. Just give an example with the issues of your COVID-19, where then um, uh, if we look into the, 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 the herbs that then work as antibacterials and as antivirals, they would then assist. He believes his own experiences have taught him that the two sides can coexist for the benefit of patients. I'm Shibu Mamakere in Polokwane. Advisor to former South African MEC for Human Settlements, Museben Zizwane, in the 2010 1 billion rand housing project, insists there were some positive aspects to the scheme. Mbuso Tsuamezi, who was the former Deputy Director General in the Free State Local Government and Housing Department, says there were over 5,200 houses built and small contractors were capacitated. The scheme, however, also saw 600 million rands unaccounted for and six junior officials lose their jobs. Mbuso Chimombe reports. Mbuso Tsuamezi says he was tasked by then MEC Msebenzizwane to do research on a so-called expenditure recovery plan to accelerate delivery of houses and rapidly spend money allocated from national government before the end of the financial year. The scheme saw material suppliers and contractors irregularly paid up front to expedite the work. Zoa Metzi says he did not explore the legalities of the plan. When discussions are taking place and somebody says, it's not in accordance with supply chain. I assume, Chair, that the CFO will then take the responsibility to deal with issues of financial management. If the HOD had issues with legal service, the opportunity that availed could have requested the head of legal or requested uh, the office of the Premier to provide him with that. Yes, myself, I did not go to that, that level, Chair. The scheme resulted in an estimated 600 rands being unaccounted for and some contractors simply not building the houses allocated to them. Tuametsi, however, says 
there were positive aspects, including the capacitation of many emerging contractors who did not have to go looking for capital from commercial banks and the building of approximately 5,200 units. It will be very important to check with the same contractors that were assisted, whether by, by doing this thing, have we been able to assist them to then start to be financially better uh, by providing them with material without having to go through. So what I'm saying is that the, the product in terms of units that have been uh, produced during that financial year, which are contained in the annual report of that financial year, indicate that on the ground there is complete, uh, completeness. So I made it denied any knowledge of Zwane's alleged strong-arm tactics to get former HOD Mpom Gwena to sign off on documents linked to the scheme, which Mkwena said he knew were irregular. He did, however, admit to subcontracting to a contractor to build 500 houses, but said he did not see any conflict of interest. This 500 project chair did not receive the advance, so he did not benefit on the, the scheme that was that we are talking about. The material that was bought there was bought by resources that we provided, not the resources from the scheme. Meanwhile, Free State Human Settlements head Tim Mohese, who also testified on Monday, says with hindsight he should not have entered into what he characterizes as a commercial property investment with director of Blackhead Consulting, Edwin Sordi, Sodi was part of the service provider that received 230 million rands from the Free State Human Settlements Department for a 2014 project to assess and audit asbestos in low-cost houses. It was a commercial transaction. My trusteeship was, was declared. I had no intention of hiding that transaction. It's auditable or it's traceable. And uh, one wanted to keep it in that particular level so that uh, you deal it with it with in in that particular case uh, in an event that anything happens and uh, i contributed substantially more in that particular uh, transaction uh, as well in that particular transaction but maybe on hindsight i shouldn't have the state capture commission continues on tuesday with Saudi expected to take the stand again and zwane expected to make an application to postpone his testimony. That report by Busi Chimompe. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on internet and satellite. From an African perspective, Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French and English, giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalunyenzovo and you are listening to Channel Africa. We are Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It's 7.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective.
Good morning, I'm Anne Musan. The headline, Strogo's President Fonya Singbe has named the first ever female Prime Minister to head the government in the West African nation. The Commission of Inquiry into State captures yet to respond to former South African President Jacob Zuma's letter in which he says he will not participate in its proceedings until Commission Chairperson Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo recuses himself. And the number of people around the world who have died from COVID-19 since the disease first emerged last year, has just passed one million. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you. And fragile gains made over the past decade to advance women and children's health are threatened by conflict, the climate crisis and COVID-19. This is according to a new report released on Friday from the global movement Every Woman, Every Child, or EWEC. The report examines the deep-rooted inequities which continue to deprive women and children and adolescents of their rights, noting birthplace as a significant determinant of survival. For more on its findings, Samura Mangesi spoke to the UN Child Agency's Jennifer Requedro, who is behind the data analysis. So the report is, is divided up into three main sections. The first is to try and give a sense of the progress prior to the start of the COVID pandemic. And it's a mixture of good and uh, bad news. The good news is that before March of 2019, deaths for children under the age of five had reached an all-time low around the world. Maternal deaths had similarly dropped by around 35%. And we have um, reached a, a much higher level of intervention coverage of essential services, um, with some interventions reaching over 80% coverage. And there was uh, a lot of increase in political commitment to the Every Woman, Every Child movement, including 776 multi-stakeholder commitments and over $186 billion to improve women, children, and adolescent lives. However, those positive uh, trends mask some hidden in inequities and also some continuing problems around the world with conflict and climate change. So in terms of inequities, there were still birthplace and wealth status still drive a lot of the whether women, children, and adolescents survive, thrive, and reach their potential. So at the moment, we have an increasing concentration of child and maternal deaths in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia as the two regions in the world that are lagging furthest behind. Um, Also, of course, maternal newborn child and adolescent mortality rates are higher in all countries that are affected by conflict. And it's important to note that climate change is still threatening the lives of all children, adolescents, and women everywhere. Despite COVID-19, we can't lose the momentum that we were starting to generate around climate change and the reduction of conflict. So the second part of the report goes into this, the whole issue of commitment tracking um, for women, children, and adolescents. And as I've already pointed out, 
in the past decade, there was a, a large increase in the number of commitments and the amount of money that was allocated to women, children, and adolescent health. However, the latest survey that was sent around to commitment makers shows that around half of them um, are expressing some concern about their ability to make good on commitments made and their ability to make commitments in the future. So this is very concerning as we're on the cusp of a global financial crisis, economic crisis, that we still um, hold firm to our commitments to women, children, and adolescents. The third section of the report focuses in on the impact of COVID-19 on women, children, adolescent lives. And the part, part of the focus here is looking at around the world's um, disruptions in essential services um, through some surveys that have been conducted by WHO and UNICEF. Um, there have been reports of widespread disruptions in essential services for women, children, and, and adolescents with some of the more preventative interventions like immunizations and bed net, net distribution being the hardest hit. There is some evidence of recovery in places where lockdown measures have been lifted, but it remains to be seen as the pandemic continues on the ability of countries to maintain essential health services. Other ways in which COVID is impacting the lives of women, children, and adolescents is through the global economic crisis, which is resulting in um, expected increases in the number of, of people living in poverty and experiencing hunger and reduction in their ability to afford essential health care and food. There's also, of course, been a lot of disruptions in, um, in, in education services, uh, which puts a long-term, can have a long-term negative impact on um, the success of, of children and adolescents as they grow up. And there have been increasing reports of domestic violence. So those are some of the key findings, but there are many ways forward and reasons for optimism. The report stresses that uh, one major way through which the world can recover um, and not lose a lot of ground to the COVID-19 pandemic for women, children, and adolescents is to, again, think through how we can best leverage uh, multilateralism through um, initiatives like the Every Woman, Every Child, gathering partners together to leverage resources and maintain political visibility for women, children, and adolescent health. Um, there's also a strong emphasis on, in, on strengthening country health information systems. I think COVID-19 has made evidently clear that countries need regular high-quality data for just routine programming and then also to make sure that they're able to track the pandemic and its impact and able to maintain services um, during those times. So I will stop there and turn it back over to you. Those are the main results from the report. All right. And what's at stake if the world fails to act now? Why does this report matter so much? So this report matters for many reasons. One is to, again, have a spotlight on women, children, and adolescents, and that even as countries must respond to the global pandemic, which is affecting everyone's lives, that we don't lose sight of women, children, and adolescents in this last decade towards the achievement of the SDGs, which include elimination of all preventable deaths among children, adolescents, and um, pregnant women. Um, so it's a critical, it's a crucial time point because we're sort of over six months into the pandemic. We're aware of how it's been impacting service delivery 
and um, and our financial outlook. And it's just important right now at this moment, especially given that we're during the UNGA and that there are only we're closing in on the 10-year mark for the 2030 goals, that we don't lose sight of these um, of making sure we still achieve SDG three and uh, that we keep women, children, and adolescents in the center. That was UN Child Agency's Jennifer Requejo speaking to Samora Mangesi. WHO recommends 30 minutes of physical activity a day for adults and one hour a day for children. If your local or national guidelines allow it, go outside for a walk, a run or a ride, and keep a safe distance from others. If you can't leave the house, find an exercise video online, dance to music, do some yoga, or walk up and down the stairs. Avoid touching your eyes, nose and mouth to slow the spread of the coronavirus. For more information on the coronavirus, visit the World Health Organization site at www.who.int. It's 7.40 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Uh, Today is World Heart Day with the whole month of September marked as Heart Month. Protect Our Next, a coalition of health organizations in South Africa supporting better tobacco control, is shining a spotlight on tobacco consumption as a key risk factor for cardiovascular disease and the tobacco control measures in the Southern African nation that could help prevent unnecessary CVDs and other deaths. According to the Heart and Stroke Foundation of South Africa, heart disease and strokes have the second highest mortality rate in the country after TB, HIV and AIDS. Cardiovascular diseases are responsible for one in five deaths with over 82,000 lives lost annually. Project and Communications Manager at the National Council Against Smoking, Dr. Sharon Nyatanza, joins us on the line this morning. Dr. Nyatanza, good morning and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning. Now, what are the facts supporting um, that the correlation, the correlation between tobacco consumption and cardiovascular diseases? Mm. So, as you said, you know, cardiovascular disease, our heart diseases, are the second biggest cause of death in South Africa, and exposure to tobacco smoke remains one of the strongest risk factors for you know for the development of cardiovascular diseases. And this actually you know highlights the urgent need to turn the tide on the tobacco epidemic. So, in other words, really, uh, when you use tobacco products or when you are exposed to secondhand smoke, or even when you actually use uh, you know uh, products like hookah pipes which do have tobacco and even other products like you know your e-cigarettes or your vape products or your heated tobacco products like your icos you actually are increasing your risk for for heart diseases so people who actually are exposed for example to secondhand smoke actually has a 25 percent increased risk of developing these heart diseases 
Now, as the National Council Against Smoking, uh, you and other partners, um, you know, are, are trying to protect our in the protect our next, uh, calling for better tobacco control in South Africa. Do you think this will make any difference in reducing the rate at which citizens are impacted by CVDs? Mm. So you know. If communities and if, uh, if, if, if households adopt healthier lifestyles, including stopping tobacco use, um, obviously we're also talking about physical activity, healthy eating, etc. But if they actually, uh, you know, reduce the use of tobacco, we would definitely see a reduced uh, burden on the healthcare system from, uh, from CVDs and cardiovascular diseases. But when we actually reduce uh, the use of tobacco. We reduce uh, CVDs, we reduce the burden of disease, and lives are actually saved. So when we actually have stronger tobacco control policies, like we've been currently lobbying for the tobacco bill to be finalized and passed into law, when that tobacco bill is actually passed, we will see a decrease in the smoking rate in South Africa and simultaneously a decrease in the disease burden and in cardiovascular disease and, and, and all the other non-communicable diseases because tobacco is actually a common denominator not only for the heart diseases but also for cancer, also for diabetes and also for chronic lung uh, you know, d- diseases. So when we actually have a stronger tobacco control law, which will actually make it easier for people to stop smoking, make it also easier for us to protect non-smokers from, from secondhand smoke, we will definitely see a reduction uh, in these diseases in South Africa. Now, do you think if communities uh, demonize tobacco use, um, this will make a difference in uh, society in uh, reducing cases of addiction? So this will definitely uh, make a, a positive impact on, you know, on the whole, um, you know, societal acceptance of tobacco use. Because what we still see is that many people who, who use tobacco products actually start doing so as teenagers, as young people, and they become addicted and some of them become lifestyle smokers. So if we can curb the initiation of tobacco use right at that point, at the beginning, uh, by, you know, reducing social acceptance of using this tobacco products, if we stop glamorizing these tobacco products, if we stop every avenue of advertising by tobacco industry, we will definitely stop initiation. And if we stop initiation, we will have, you know, succeeded in turning the tide on the tobacco epidemic. And obviously we would have succeeded in providing a, a healthier South Africa and a better South Africa for everyone. Now, just on something that people generally speak about with regards to, um, you know, the addiction to tobacco, um, you know, you find that uh, some people will say that uh, they've been smoking since they were teenagers and, uh, you know, in their 60s or 70s having to stop smoking, then they get uh, sick. Speak to us about that, that. Is this the case or is this all basically part of something that has been there and now the withdrawal from the tobacco? becomes a problem. Mm. So definitely, you know, the problem with tobacco is not that people want to use it, but it's because it's addictive. Nicotine is addictive, but it is also a dangerous and harmful drug. So what happens is when people stop smoking, their body now has to get used to all those years or all those months of, of not They now have to get used to having no nicotine in their bodies. And then they now experience withdrawal symptoms. And these withdrawal symptoms 
are actually, uh, you know, not comfortable and they differ from person to person. Some people have anxiety. Some people have mood swings, for example. Some people actually report that they do not have, uh, you know, withdrawal symptoms. So it's not prescriptive and it differs from, from case to case. But the good news is that these withdrawal symptoms are not permanent. Usually they peak in the first three to five days and they start getting easier. So it is actually a sign that your body is healing. It's also a sign um, that, you know, what with nicotine is now leaving your body. But the National Council Against Smoking also provides support and it provides, you know, assistance to those who are actually struggling to stop smoking. So those who are struggling to stop smoking or those who want to stop smoking can call the National Council Against Smoking at 011-720-3145. We also actually encourage people to also try and see their pharmacist for, you know, products like the nicotine replacement therapy, which actually make the nicotine withdrawals easier. They don't actually, you know, just stop them completely because it differs from person to person, but it actually does ease, you know, the, the withdrawal symptoms as well. So yes, nicotine withdrawal symptoms are uncomfortable, but they're also part of the process and they are a sign that, you know, your body is actually adapting to living without nicotine and it can be done. And then in the case of the elderly, where it then becomes a, a case of, of, of one then having emphysema, how, what, what pushes um, for an individual, uh, or is that part of their medical history maybe, where it then develops to becoming emphysema and uh, then it needs more medical attention? Yes. So it definitely depends from person to person because some people, it's not only about age, some people actually manage to stop smoking um, even in their, in, 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 even in late age. So it does uh, have, have, have a lot to do as well with your medical history and basically your biology. So besides just, you know, the nicotine replacement therapies, you will see that there actually are other drugs that are available over the counter, like your bruparin and your varenicline, but only these can actually be, be given only under prescription because definitely there are more stronger medications which are actually also designed to help people to stop smoking. But what does happen is, yes, it is uncomfortable and all these other things, but your health is much better off without uh, tobacco products. Now, Dr. Nyatanza, uh, you spoke of uh, the bill that is in Parliament and, uh, you know, you're waiting for it to, to be put through. You're still motivating for it to be passed as a bill. Now, how long is that process going to take? Do you have any indication? Mm. So, you know, the process was technically also delayed uh, because of the COVID-19 pandemic that we, that we have. Uh, we don't have the definite dates yet, but we are hopeful that by the year 2021, this bill will be finalized. Dr. Nyatanza, thank you for joining us uh, this morning on Africa Rise and Shine. Thank you. That is uh, Dr. Sharon Nyatanza, Project and Communications Manager at South Africa's National Council Against Smoking, joining us on the line at 7.49 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our economics update up next with Tabi Solohoku. Good morning. The Zambia Chamber of Mines says the country should treat mineral royalty payments as a deductible expense in order to avoid double taxation and attract investment. 
Since 2019, mineral royalty payments have not been treated as a deductible expense when calculating corporate income tax and that provision was kept unchanged in the government's annual budget unveiled on Friday. The chamber says that the effect of this is that mining companies end up being taxed on income that has already been paid over as a royalty, a situation referred to as double taxation. A copy seen by the Reuters shows that Nigeria's long-awaited oil reform bill would privatize the Nigerian National Petroleum Company, amend changes to deep water royalties made late last year, and scrap key regulatory agencies in favor of new bodies. President Muhammadu Buhari has sent the bill to the Senate. Nigeria is Africa's largest crude exporter. Economist Mike Schussler has warned that South Africa's unemployment figure will climb to 34% in the second quarter from 30.1% in the first quarter of this year. His warning comes ahead of Statistics South Africa's release of the much-anticipated jobs numbers for the second quarter of 2020, following a month of long postponements. The expected increase in the employment rate, unemployment rate is attributed to the hard lockdown government implemented from March in an effort to arrest the spread of coronavirus. Schussler says an even larger increase in unemployment can be expected next year. Unemployment is always a lagging indicator. A business has a problem, uh, they don't make their income, they try to keep you, and especially when you've got these extra UIF payments, Pay out, they'll keep you a, a, a longer, but the business say doesn't turn around. Uh, that means that four or five months later, you only lose your job. That's the first thing. The second thing is, in the every year we get about six hundred thousand new uh, people entering, net new people entering the job market, and obviously by next year, uh, the first quarter, we will see those people, and they will struggle to find jobs in the beginning. Labour analyst Terry Bell says economic growth will not be enough to fix South Africa's unemployment problem. He says that the country has a long past of jobless growth which calls for a new approach. Bell's comments come as Statistics South Africa prepares to release the job numbers for the second quarter of 2020. The unemployment rate was recorded at 30.1% in the first quarter of this year, Bell says the answer to slowing down the unemployment rate lies in reducing the wage bill of cabinet ministers and executives in the private sector. So economic growth is not the only thing we should look at. We should be looking at the health of the economy, the health in terms of people having decent jobs at decent pay. And perhaps we need to really seriously start to consider that huge wage and welfare gap I mean, you could start at the top by looking at even Parliament, if you like, where ministers are paid over two million rand, and that's just in terms of their their salaries, with with all the perks, etc., in terms of transport expenses, etc., it's worth much, much more. And the same applies in the private sector. 
Workers at the Maibuye Bus Company in South Africa's Eastern Cape Province have accused the company of inflating salaries of executive managers, saying this is tantamount to corruption. They've embarked on a three-week unprotected strike. The workers are complaining, among other things, about the restructuring of Maibuye without being consulted and the creation of new positions which they deem unnecessary. The General Secretary of the newly formed Workers' Union, Arise Msebenzi Union of South Africa, Larry Pusika. The negative impact of the restructuring led to the exorbitant increases of salary adjustments for executives, senior managers and managers. Some increases went as far as almost 400,000 rand in, in a one-year cycle. And there were unnecessary positions that were introduced by the restructuring. Like, for instance, the company's got 288 employees or 280-something, only 88 buses, which is only, there's only 30-something buses operational, the actual at the moment. So the other thing is the exorbitant which we said there needs to be a significant decline because they are too much. The U.S. dollar is trading at a 378.38 Nigerian Nara, 1143 Botswana Pula, 107.60 Kenyan Shilling and 1998 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar costs in Brazil, 5 rule 58 Russia, 78 rubles 71 India, 73 rupees 65 in China, a dollar is changing hands at 61.81 and in South Africa, it will cost you 17 rand 8. The U.S. US dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and 85 cents to euro. Looking at commodities markets now, gold is trading at $1,867 and platinum at $875 pounds. Brent crude oil is at $42.26 a barrel. From an African perspective. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Luanda Malme, technical producer Spiso Mashiko, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or WhatsApp on plus 277-6300327 or tweet us at Channel Africa 1. Our taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Yamore by Salif Keita and Cesaria Evora. Have a great day and keep safe.